time we didn't quite get done where we were wanting to get to, besides explaining to get to. We're talking here about the Holy Spirit's role in Revelation. It's been a brief time talking about his role as the agent of general revelation, his role in Old Testament prophetism, and then we put in this section here on the Holy Spirit as he relates to the ministry of Christ. The reason I put that there, of course, is because, as Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the last and greatest uh, form of the revelation of God, and we find that the Holy Spirit is at every turn assisting him uh, in his ministry on earth. Of course, Jesus goes away, however, and so we are left still with this need of revelation, and so we find that the Holy Spirit finally is involved with the inspiration and production of Scripture. Scripture is not the same as prophetism. Prophetism is the broader category of which Scripture is a part. Uh, so, uh, if we want to put it on the board here, here's prophetism. Here's inspiration, uh, where we are producing Scripture. And the term inspiration is only used of Scripture, uh, ironically, even though the words of Christ are breathed out by God, which is the meaning of inspiration. Uh, the term is only ever used with reference to Scripture. And we find that the Holy Spirit is particularly involved in this, uh, such that what is being produced in the Holy Scriptures is in fact the Word of God. And we find this is true of both the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 48, for instance, we find Isaiah saying, The Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. And then he con continues, This is what the Lord says. And it's his written record here. The Holy Spirit sent him. Um, Acts 1.16, The Scriptures which the Holy Spirit foretold through the mouth of David had to be fulfilled. And get a little bit of a picture here of what inspiration is like. The Holy Spirit speaking through the conduit or the channel of David, his servant. David is the one who spoke the words, but the Holy Spirit is the one who is producing the content. And these are called the scriptures. They had to be fulfilled. Hebrews 3 speaks about uh, Psalm 95, uh, which, as far as we know, is written by a human author. Uh, but in Hebrews 3 it says, the Holy Spirit says. Well, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in all of Psalm 95. But we recognize the Holy Spirit is responsible for the production of Scripture. Get a little bit of specificity in the New Testament, but not as much perhaps as we'd like. Uh, we'd like to know exactly how this works. What is the mechanics of how uh, God uses human authors to produce what is the very word of God? Uh, but that, that, those details are not forthcoming. But we do find, perhaps, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, the closest explanation of what inspiration is like. Um, we're all familiar with 2 Timothy 3. It's a well-known passage here. All scripture is God-breathed. But it doesn't really say anything about how, it's ha how it happens. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.13 perhaps gives us a little bit of detail, but 
not enough to really satisfy us. And uh, Paul is speaking about the, this is the transmission process of revelation in Scripture. He says here, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. That's about as close as Paul comes to an explanation of what inspiration is. Uh, the Holy Spirit is responsible here for placing thoughts that are mingled with words such that what is produced, what is spoken, what is written here, are the words taught by the Spirit, spiritual truths, truths from the Spirit, reflected in words. Uh, again, the details are not all forthcoming, but that's, that's how he describes it. First, Second Peter 1, this is Peter's explanation of what inspiration is. And he says here in Second Peter 1, 21, starting in 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, really the idea of origin, the prophet isn't responsible for the content. He does not, he's not the one that originates the message. He gives it words, yes, but the thought is not his. It doesn't originate with the man. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Carried along. What, what does that mean? Well, it's the same term. Uh, that it, It's actually a nautical term term used in, 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 of sailing vessels, the ship would be carried along by the wind. It's not as though the boat moves itself. It is dependent upon some other source for its, for its uh, energy. And so it puts up a sail, it catches the wind, and the wind moves it along. And so the Holy Spirit moved the prophets along in the production of Scripture. And that's as, as close as the Scripture writers come to defining what inspiration is, and so you come to the end and say, eh, I don't quite get it. Well, that's all we got, so that's, that's what we've got to live with. Let's, let's see if we can summarize what we do know about this here, though, under three points. First, there is a measure of human passivity in the process, a measure of passivity. The material does not originate with humans. It originates with God. At the same time, there is a measure of human activity in the process. The human authors bring their literary, cultural, social backgrounds to the writing process, and these clearly emerge to put individual signatures on each piece of scripture. And so when you read, uh, for instance, perhaps not seen as well in the English translation, but if you happen to uh, know a little bit of Greek, you'll, you'll recognize, you can sort of tell when Paul's writing and when Peter's writing, and when John's writing, because they have different syntax, different vocabulary that's common to them. And so somehow, the human is actually contributing here at least something as far as cultural, linguistic backgrounds, uh, so, such that uh, uh, they have their own stamp on each portion, but we recognize that the message of Scripture is absolutely inerrant at, in, in all of its and I say here, the organic confluence of divine and human is not dictation, 
So it's not as though there's just sort of a letting go where God just sort of, you know, takes over and, and moves the mouth for them. Otherwise, it would sound all the same, but it doesn't. Uh, so there, it's so it's not it's not dictation. The Spirit who expresses spiritual truth in words, so that the words of Scripture are the words of God. Okay. Um, any questions on that? Clearly, the Holy Spirit is deeply involved. I don't have a question as much as um, I kind of wanted to run this by real quick. I was going okay. to take a nap before work Sunday, and I saw Charles Stanley on TV. Okay. And he said, "Walking in the Spirit," and about, of course, I had to see what it was about. And two things he put there, and it reminded me, he was pretty much saying what you had said about being a person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a, a thing. That um, to walk in the Spirit is to live moment to moment, aware and dependent on the Holy Spirit, and sensitive to the initial promptings. Okay. And that, that kind of threw me a little bit off because the initial promptings is what we talked about, maybe being conscience as opposed to being the Holy Spirit. Well, if I if I can put off the question a little bit because okay. we're 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 about to come to the to indwelling and then the work of indwelling, such as in the decision making process. So that that's all ahead of us. Okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll put a hold on the question, if that's okay. okay. Uh, let me know in, in a couple of weeks if we haven't gotten to it. Remind me, and we'll see if, we, if, okay. if, if that is the question that's answered. Okay? Anything on inspiration? Okay. So we're narrowing in our circle here. The work of the Spirit in the world in revealing himself, now the specific work of the Holy Spirit in the believer, and then we'll get even tighter when we talk about the Holy Spirit's work in Israel and the Holy Spirit's work in the, in the church, so church saints and Christians. So, the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer, all believers generally, and I start here by talking about regeneration. By definition here, God's decisive, Efficacious termination of the spiritually dead unbeliever's resistance to God by imparting to him the new nature. Okay, so regeneration here. You can see that if you can see, you can see it in the English term even here. The generating of human life. It's not a process. It's an event. It's the act of springing to life. It's the animation of the believer. So it's. That's why I say it's an imparting to him a new nature. Uh, it's spiritual life, but I think it's more than just life. Let's see if we can't follow this here. John 1.13 says that we are born of God. So the idea here of birth, new birth, springing to life. John 3, 3-5, again we have this uh, uh, exchange here of Jesus with Nicodemus, and we find... Uh, Jesus say, unless you are born again, you'll not see the kingdom of God. And uh, it's actually interesting, the Greek term that's used here um, can be translated again or from above. It's it's one of those terms that has a a broad lexical range. And so Jesus said, you have to be born again. And so Nicodemus says, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, how can how can I be how can I go back into mom here and be born again? That's weird. And, and Jesus says, no 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 no, you're not getting it. You need to be born from above. Okay, born of the spirit is is the word that's used. And so, uh, born of the spirit again implies here that the spirit is involved in the 
regenerating process, the giving of new life. Okay, so it is giving new life, but it's more than just an animating principle. It's not as though, you know, you know, it's, you know the, on, the, on the TV when they come with the, with the, with the uh, little electrical thing and stimulate you, and boom, the guy starts breathing again. I think it's more than that, though. When a person comes to life, it's not that the old nature is animated so that he is enabled to perform spiritual functions. Instead, the Holy Spirit produces a whole new nature, a whole new set of attributes, including a new mind, new will, and new emotions. Uh, so it's not just an animation of what is there. It's actually an animation by means of a new nature. Uh, so it's a complex of attributes, not just a springing to life here. And so I think we, we find that, uh, particularly in some of these texts, that, that explain what uh, what regeneration is like. For instance, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Description here of uh, regeneration. It says here, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove you, remove from your flat, your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my capital S spirit in you, such that you are moved to follow my decrees, and so that you will be careful to keep my laws. Okay, so it's not just that you spring to life, but there's actually something that happens to you. The Holy Spirit intermingles with your spirit, not as though there's some sort of ontological or, or, or you know, substantive merging of the spirits, but the Holy Spirit is so active within the human spirit that it actually causes you to think and to will differently. It motivates you to obedience. Uh, so it's not just springing to life, it's actually a, a, a change and, and, and change by addition here of the Holy Spirit so that you're motivated to do different things. And again, this, this all becomes very important because, you know, when, when we're talking about regeneration, how do I, how do I know I'm saved? It's, a, it's an important question we all ask ourselves at some point. And it's a little different question than how do I get saved? Okay? You know, we, would, we, we could ask, ask the question, how do I get saved? And we would say what? Okay, you, okay, you've got to be born again. What, what has to happen? Jesus has to provide his death for yours. Yeah, he's got to provide his death for yours. In fact, he has to provide his own righteousness for yours. That's how you get saved. How do you, how do you secure this? By? By faith. Okay. Now we ask the second question, how do I know? Okay. And you say, well, isn't that the same question? No, it's not the same question. Mm -hmm. um, let me see if I can illustrate this. Okay. Some of you deer hunters here, right? You know, you're, you're, you go out there with the, with the, with the gun, and, you know, the, gun, the, the deer is behind you, and you're sort of at an awkward angle, and you, you, you pull the trigger, and because of the awkward angle, you get, you get knocked back into the snowbank, and then you stand up, and you say, how is a deer killed? Well, by a bullet. Now, the second question, how do I know he's killed? Well, I jump up and run over and see if I can find the body laying there. You say, well, don't you look for the bullet? No, I don't look for the bullet. I look for the body. Why? Because I look for the effects of the bullet. And so that's the same thing with, with, uh, with regeneration. How do I know I'm saved? Well, 
by the effects of the regenerating impulse of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's how we know we're saved. We're saved by faith, grace for faith. We know we're saved because of the effects of that. And there's there are there are clear effects of regeneration. It changes our will, it changes our mind, so that we actually think and do differently. Okay? And then Second uh, Corinthians five, let's read this one here, I've got it in front of me. Uh, those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. From now on we recognize that no one is according to the flesh, because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature, product of God's creative breath here. And it's not just that something sprung to life, but old things have passed away, new things have come. Okay, so that's, that's the effect of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Uh, Deuteronomy 36, the Lord God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your descendants, actually a rather graphic metaphor. He's going to cut something away, and he's going to replace it. Okay, So that, the point here, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and live. Okay, so you have new life, you're regenerated, and with the result that you will be obedient, you will love the Lord your God with all your soul and heart and mind and live eternally. Okay. So that's the that's what rebel that's what regeneration does. Now, some have said, well, regeneration is something that only happens in the New Testament and uh, because of our because of our dispensationalism, we tend to look at the Old and New Testament and say not everything in in the uh, New Testament is in the Old Testament. Uh, there are certain things that the Holy Spirit does new now that he didn't do then. And some would say God's regeneration is one of those things. Uh, and the reason that this sounds reasonable is because the term isn't used. The term regeneration is not used. There's a Greek term for regeneration, but nothing like that in Hebrew. So some, some have said that this is something new. Uh, but I will say there's several reasons why I would say in the Old Testament we do have regeneration. First, even though there's no term for regeneration, there are several Hebrew expressions for regeneration. First, we looked at some of these already. The circumcised heart of the new heart, a new spirit, the heart of flesh that replaces the heart of stone. And then Zephaniah 3, one we haven't looked at yet, is the, the pure lip, which you say, that's, that's kind of weird. Um, but uh, we find that in the Old Testament that the lip is often used as a metaphor of the whole person. Uh, for instance, when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, is uh, before the throne of God, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He says, woe is me, I'm done, ruined, I don't have a chance, I've seen God. And so what does, so what does, what does God do? Yes, he sends an angel to take a coal and do what with it? Touch his lips. And says, now you have been cleansed. Okay. Well, it's not that Isaiah had a dirty mouth, maybe he did, but but I don't think that's the point. Uh, the point is that he has been cleansed. So the lips stand for the whole person. And so I think we have the same thing in Zephaniah 3.9, so that, and we find in the millennium, that God, that God will give to his people lips, a pure lip, so that they will worship me from shoulder to shoulder. 
so they all line up and worship God. And so uh, I think the whole idea here is there's this regenerating impulse uh, that is really abundant in the millennium. So no term for regeneration, but I think we've got these pictures, these expressions. Talk about regeneration in the Old Testament. Jesus chides Nicodemus. We just talked about that for not understanding the nature of regeneration. Nicodemus sneaks out by night to talk to Jesus and says, "How can I be born? How how can I, you know, how can I, how can I uh, be right with God? What do I have to do?" And Jesus says, "Well, you've got to be born again." And here's a the teacher. And that's what Jesus calls him. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't get what I'm saying. You actually confuse what I'm saying with something else. You're the teacher, and you don't understand. So he ought to have understood that there was a, a, a thing that uh, might be called regeneration. But I think really the heart, the, cent- the central reason why I say regeneration is necessary is because of, this, of, of, of what is necessary to salvation. <laughs> if you deny that regeneration is in the Old Testament, I think it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding about depravity and the meaning of regeneration. People always uh, live and act according to their natures. What does Jeremiah 13.23 there say? Can a leopard change his spots? And rhetorical question, well, no, obviously not. And what's the, what's the response? Well, neither can you who are accustomed to sinning. That sin by your very nature, just like leopards have spots by their very nature, you can't do what is right. So there's a statement here of the total inability of a human being to please God. There's none that seek after him in any dispensation. It doesn't matter whether you're talking Old Testament, New Testament. That's the fundamental nature of mankind. They have turned away from God uniformly and universally such that they cannot please God such that we are, we are able, we, we, we find, for instance, in the Psalms that no one seeks after God. No, not one. It's repeated in Romans. It's where we know it from, probably more. But it actually starts out in Psalms. So there's, there's the problem that has to be overcome. It's the same problem in the Old Testament as we have in the New Testament. So if we need regeneration to overcome it in the New Testament, they had to have regeneration to overcome it in the Old Testament as well. There has to be some mechanism for overcoming it. So I say here, the old nature is totally corrupt, incapable of pleasing God, and must be supplanted by a new nature, a new heart, a new mind, will, and emotions, in order for the saint to perform any acts of faith or righteousness. You are not capable even of expressing faith, apart from some sort of change that goes on in the heart. It's it's not as though the person who is a believer um, is... The difference is not that he's fundamentally smarter than the next guy. The reason that he exercises faith is because God has done something to his heart, regenerated that heart. Uh, no one believes all on their own. Yes, sir? Am I wrong to think that everybody in this room has probably gone through that feeling that Emotion that circumstance of regeneration? I would hope so. <laughs> I guess I can't speak for everyone, but. Uh, I mean, because I, 
I could tell you to the almost to the hour. No. And if somebody didn't go through it, I'd sort it for them. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for the reminder. I mean, sometimes we can get into sort of academic mode here and buzz through this material without pausing to reflect on that. I appreciate that. appreciate the comment. That, that's well worth reflecting on. Well, would you say uh, the old nature must be supplanted by a new nature? To, I mean, you're not replacing the old nature. Um, yeah, well, when I, when I first... Is that from the Old Testament? Okay. <laughs> no, no, I, no, whatever it is, it's the same. Maybe I can put this up here. Um, there's, there's a distinction that Paul makes in the, in the, uh, this is the person, by the way. Okay, um, but we find that uh, Paul makes this distinction in the New Testament of the old man and the old nature. Um, actually, the term old nature is one that's used in the NIV. Actually, if you look at most translations, it's something like flesh. Um, it's actually, it's actually, it can be a confusing term because we get the, we could get the idea that it's the body. That's not what it's meant. I think NIV probably captures it well to say that this, this is, this is some sort of dispositional thing. Uh, so, and so that's why they call it the old nature. Although we have to recognize that that is actually a supplied term. What we find in the New Testament is that the old man is dead. Okay? So what we were in Adam, that totally depraved individual, he's dead. <coughs> he no longer exists. Okay? Now, obviously we say, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm still me. It's not as though I, I somehow completely changed personalities and no longer exist and actually some sort of, you know, a, a new new force has taken over my body here. No, so it's, it's still me. So nothing happened to the human nature, but what happens is we get a new nature, and if I can put it, put it, I, well, I probably shouldn't put the face there. This man is the spirit man, okay? The new man is the spirit man. So, and notice I say is. He is a new man. He has something left of this. Remnants of sin is what the uh, reformers called it. Um, the, the flesh, uh, the old nature is a, is a valid way of expressing it. Something is left. But what, what I really want to avoid is saying, okay, here's me. Now I'm just split down the middle here. I've got old and new, or perhaps you know, we've got the, uh, we've got. I can't draw them here, but there's, <laughs> there's the Satan uh, on this side and the angel. I can't draw. But, but that that there's some sort of an equal equal footing, and you just sort of toggle back and forth in who you listen to. Uh, the nature of regeneration is such that you are the spirit man, and that's why there can always be progress. You are a new creature. You still have the remnants of sin, but you are a new creature. You are fundamentally different, and that's why I put the S in the head there, because that's, that's the dominating principle. Now, it, there can be, it can be overcome. Your, your sanctification, the progress in sanctification is not always uniform. We all recognize that. But there should be growth because you are the spirit man, 
instead of the old man, the natural man. So that's why I say supplant, because there is a sense in which it is shoving it out of the way. In fact, we find um, terms like you need to, by the Spirit, being put to death the old nature. So there is a sense in which he's being squashed and squashed further and further out of existence, and that's why I say supplant. Does that make sense? Sorry, I asked. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good question. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you can put your, you no longer are under the control, you know, of sin. Right. And so it's, uh, it's like the old man, the new man. It seems like there's a, there's a battle going on. All there the is, time. there is a battle going on, on all the time. But it's one of those, that, those things that, even though you might l lose a battle here and there, you're, you're winning the war. So that's why I use that term supplant, because there is a sense in which there is a displacing going on. Sounds like that's, that might be a controversial uh, issue, huh? <laughs> yeah, there, there's, some, there's some articles in our journal. Are uh, you going to cover one. that later on? Um, actually, I spend more, if, if, we, if I was here teaching <laughs> salvation, we would, yeah, but uh, it's, it's a little far afield. But uh, I think it's a good, good topic yeah. to broach here. Thanks. After uh, Pentecost, work of the Holy Spirit did have a different impact on the believer than the believer in the Old Testament? Yes. We'll get to the specifics of that as I we want keep going. So we're going in concentric circles here. We're, right now we're in, in the work of God and all believers, and then we'll get to the work of the, of the Holy Spirit in Christians. New Testament Christians. So we'll get there. Yeah, I, I know we all, that, that's, that's the big topic we want to talk about. Why? We just whether we should. Want to keep us coming back. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> 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 no, it is. Look at this class. Okay. Was there another question? Yeah, okay. Could you call it the renewing of our minds? I mean, the well, Bible says. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. The renewing of the mind is the process whereby. You know, the, the new mind sort of supplants the old mind, such that there actually should be progress. You know, and I mean, you, know, you can probably stay, stay in the word in order to keep our mind. Sh sure, but the, but but I, what I what I want to emphasize here, and that's what I'm trying to emphasize, is there actually is progress, so that it's not just you know, if you shut your Bible, it's just going to toggle back, and you're going to lose everything. No. There's there's there's. That's why I said supplant, because there is a gradual extirpation of the effects of the of the old nature. Why is it when you're first saved you feel like the, the spirit is so much more alive? Well, I think you know, I mean, any time, I think it's just the uh, joys of youth here, Christian youth, Christian adolescence, where you know why? Yeah, it's, uh, you just you just you just really enjoy. I mean, you do see great progress. You know, when you if you're if you're talking about the uh, progress of the believer, oftentimes right up front, you, you know, it's a real sharp growth. But hopefully, even if it may level off, it's still going uphill. If you flatline or start tipping down, you know, that's that's when things become troubling, and you actually can I think you can start doubting. Did, did something really happen? Or did I manufacture that? So there ought to be progress in, like I say, extirpating the old nature and such. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, 
Okay? Good questions. Okay, so I say here, there has to be a new mind, new will, new emotions in order for faith to take place and obedience to take place because natively a person does not exercise faith. The man without the Spirit cannot please God. So he's got to have the Holy Spirit, I think, in the form of his regenerating work. And so we find these passages, particularly in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that they have a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments. Okay? So what is necessary to fearing God? It's really an Old Testament synonym for faith. What is necessary for faith and for obedience? Oh, that they had a heart. Deuteronomy 30. Lord God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart, put a new spirit in them. I will take away their heart of stone from their flesh, give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances. So all of these passages here indicate that in order for there to be the positive response of faith and obedience, something's got to happen. There has to be this work of the Holy Spirit in producing a new heart, a new nature, creating new creatures, creations here. So the Old Testament, I say here, does admittedly stress the evidence of salvation rather than the event of salvation. Um, and that's perhaps an interesting change in the way we see things uh, unfold in uh, Old Testament, New Testament. I don't think there's a fundamental difference as to what's going on, but we do find in the Old Testament more of an emphasis on the effects of regeneration rather than the event of regeneration. But I don't, I don't think that really fundamentally changes the nature of what's going on in salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. And so I say here, what is the agent of regeneration? Well, we've been going through this all along here. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so regeneration is sometimes ascribed generically to God, but on several occasions the Spirit's role is emphasized. And uh, we've looked at all these passages already, but you find that you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to have the my Holy Spirit put into you uh, so that the Holy Spirit is the agent here of regeneration. Any questions on regeneration? And it's the spirit that chooses to regenerate individuals. Mm -hmm. The wind blows where it wants to blow. I can't drum mm -hmm. up desire where desire does not exist. Yeah, nothing more, no, no passage more clear on that than uh, John 3. So, so there's this description, I need to be born again. Okay, well how? Well, the Holy Spirit blows where it wants to. We cannot tell where it's going. We cannot know when it's going to come. Well, we walked outside and you felt the wind. You, you never knew when that wind was going to come because that's not, it's not something you can predict or determine. Some, someone else determines that for you. So it's doing the choosing is my point. Sure. I'm not, mm -hmm. I did not choose it. Right, and absolutely. You, you, I mean, that's the idea, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and they, they did not choose in the Old Testament also. Right, the Holy Spirit did, did choose who it visited, who He visited with uh, or with the uh, regeneration. Yes, absolutely. 
Okay? Next then, switching gears here a little bit here, indwelling. Don't think of these as regeneration and indwelling as somehow completely divorced from one another. I don't think that's the case. What I've, in fact, I tried to make my definition sh show that that really is a, is a misunderstanding. Indwelling is the permanent regenerative articulation of the Holy Spirit with the mind and heart of all true believers. So the Holy Spirit comes in regeneration, the event, then he stays there. That's indwelling. Uh, so uh, don't, don't think of them as completely divorced from one another. The indwelling is just the perpetuation of this regenerating impulse of the Holy Spirit. That's much regeneration made permanent. Okay? Now here, here's something here that uh, perhaps is a little bit uh, um, maybe mind-boggling. We, we talk about indwelling, and uh, I think perhaps sometimes we get a, an incorrect picture because of the term that is used. Uh, the idea is sometimes perpetuated as a matter of the Holy Spirit's location. He used to be outside, and now he's inside. He was located outside of us, and now he's located inside of us. And I think that probably isn't quite the accurate picture, because remember, the Holy Spirit is God, and what do we know about God as far as his relationship to space? He's everywhere. So it's it's not as though he was he's absent in unbelievers and present in believers as far as a matter of strict location. He's everywhere. But it's a matter of his activity. Okay. So is there a certain kind of activity that the Holy Spirit aims? If we could say a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that is in believers that is not in unbelievers. Okay. So that's why I say it's an articulation of the Spirit with the mind in such a way as to produce faith and obedience. That is, that is ongoing. It's, a, it's an activity of the Holy Spirit as much as it is a location of the Holy Spirit, probably more than, more than a location. Does that make sense? Um, and I, and I do raise a question here, so perhaps maybe you're thinking about it. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You have from God. You are not your own. You are brought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And there's, okay, well, yeah, he's located in my body. But uh, let's realize that the context of 1 Corinthians 6 is that of sexual immorality. You know, some of the Corinthians were apparently concluding that because salvation is a spiritual thing, it's incidental to the body. Okay, I'm, my, my spirit is saved who cares about the body? My body is irrelevant. Some of them would actually suppress the body. Some would just let the body go and do whatever it wants. And in this case, sexual immorality was, was popping up in the Corinthian church because of this confusion as to what the nature of salvation was. And what does Paul say? It, it's not just that the Holy Spirit saved your soul. He, he actually came and transformed you, you as a whole, and specifically, in this case, your body as well. So it's not as though you, just your soul was saved and your body is irrelevant. God saved you, and you are, a, you are a conflation of material and immaterial parts, 
and all of that is saved, and it all should show the, the, the effects of the sanctifying influences of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why he puts it this way. Not to say that the Holy Spirit didn't used to be located in your body, and now he is. Okay? It's that he is, he is there, he is supposed to be transforming all of you, not just giving you eternal life in heaven. So I think that's the point. So I say here then, letter B, that indwelling has more to do with activity than with location. So regeneration results in a new nature, complete with new thoughts, intentions, and emotions that are governed by the Spirit. So what is given in regeneration is sustained in indwelling. Spirit begins in regeneration to inform the belief and behavior of a Christian, making newness of life not only possible but inevitable. Okay? So indwelling. I say here indwelling is universal among believers. And here's where we'll perhaps get some problems about, uh, about the Old Testament. You know, was there indwelling in the Old Testament? So here, perhaps we're coming to our first question. Is there something new about indwelling in the New, the new Testament that's different from the Old Testament? Right now I'm going to say no. But there's still, going, there's still other things that are new. Okay, but let's see if we can't defend that here. Romans 8-9, our first text, says that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, I recognize that's talk as New Testament context, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, we wonder how could it be different in the Old Testament. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So in the Old Testament, you could be without the Spirit and belong to God? That that doesn't quite compute. There has to be something that goes on in regeneration, and whatever is done in a a point in time has to be sustained. So theologically, it would seem to make sense. And I recognize there's going to be some texts we're going to have to deal with. Uh, But Theologically, it would seem that nothing really has changed about the makeup of an unbeliever, the makeup of a believer, and the process of sanctification. So those, all those things being uniform in the Old Testament and New Testament, it would seem, at least at this point, and we'll get to the specific text, it would seem theologically necessary that there has to be this indwelling work. Okay? We'll get to the text, but do you understand the point here? We can, if we can set those texts out of your head just for a moment. Does that make sense, what, what we're saying there? Okay. We'll, keep, we'll, we'll get to the questions here, specifically here. Um, we find also that this indwelling is permanent. It'll be with you forever. So let's get to some of these objections. Well, Acts 5.32 says that the Spirit is only given to those who obey Him. Okay, and so some would say, you know, not everybody has indwelling, only peculiarly obedient people. And so you find, for instance, particularly among Pentecostals, where the Holy Spirit comes and goes. You know, if you're disobedient, you'll lose the Holy Spirit. And so you can get Him back. And so this this indwelling does not seem to be permanent or universal because it can be lost. But I don't think that that's the point of Acts 5. Uh, I say here, to obey is regularly used by scripture writers as a metaphor for saving faith, not for perfect behavior. Okay. So, in fact, in fact, if you take a look at the Greek terms, to believe and obey are really the, the, the same, same word family. 
In fact, there is only one word that unites unbelief and lack of faith, uh, lack of faith and lack of obedience. Disobedience and unbelief are the same word in Greek. Okay, and so so there, there's a tight connection here of obedience with faith. And so the idea here is probably not saying that there's a class of people who believe, and then there's a you know a, a subclass of those who not only believe but also obey. We're talking about the same group here. Uh, so I don't think he's trying to set aside a special class of people who are indwelt and a, and a lower class that aren't. I don't think so you're saying to obey is to believe in God and Christ. Uh-huh. Yeah, but belief ultimately is a, is, a, is a manifestation of obedience. It's a particular kind of obedience. But it's not as though faith is something different than obedience. It's just a peculiar kind of obedience. And, and it's... it's I think sometimes this gets confusing because we, we don't want to make um, our salvation by works. And so we don't want to say obedience is what saved us. But, but, but recognize what saves you is Christ. Christ saves you. What is there and, and what is what, what a catalyst for it here is this, this, this faith disposition I mean, that is, that is what is given to us. But it was Christ that saves us. It is his merit. It's not as though our merit is, is anywhere. I mean, there's, a, there's, yeah, there's a whole, I don't want to get into Latin terms here, but there's, some, there, there's, there's a whole debate about this in the, in the Reformation. And so really what, faith is not so much the means of salvation as it is the instrument of salvation. If I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. It's not as though we produce this faith in order that, you know, by drumming up this activity, we are saved. No, it is, a, it is a disposition that God gives to us that causes us to submit. There's a, there's, a, there's, there's a passive element in faith that actually causes us to submit to the Lordship of Christ, and that's really what faith is. Um, but it's not so much a means as much as it is an instrument of salvation. So, um, the, the idea of faith and obedience being linked like this, in my mind, shouldn't be something that is, that is a troubling thing. Uh, those, who are, those who are believers are obedient. There's no such thing as an un, a non-obedient believer as far as in an absolute sense. I mean, yes, you can you can disobey. I mean, I'm not saying that you're perfect, and that's and that's the point. But there's no such thing as someone who says, "I'm going to believe, but I'm not going to obey," because belief is obedience, in a sense. That's why we talk about the obedience of faith in Scripture. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I don't. What, what, what I'm, what I'm saying here in Acts five, I don't think he's trying to set aside a special class of people who are indwelt. All people are indwelt. Uh, all, all believers are indwelt, and all believers are also obeyers. Um, not in a perfect sense, but all believers are obeyers. You know, we, we, we could, we could say that we, we call them believers. But we could call them repenters too. It's not as though that there's some sort of conflict between those two. Uh, so I don't think he's trying to set aside two classes of believers: those who believe only, 
and then also those who believe and obey. But he's, he's putting them all into one category. There's the assumption that the people who are believers are also obeyers, and they're all indwelt by the Spirit. Yeah? So what do you mean by uh, in your uh, or Acts 5, 32 says that the Spirit is given to those who obey, but then immediately found says since some believers are disobedient. Well, this, this is the argument. The, oh. the, the, uh, the argument is in the bold, and then the answer is in the, right. in the play text. So that's the argument. I feel better. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. Sorry about the confusion there. The argument is in the bold. Right. That's the objection, if I can put that. And so, sorry, sorry about the confusion there. See, are we okay now? We're good. Okay. Second objection. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit was absent before Pentecost, in some sense. You know, John 7 says the Holy Spirit has not yet been given. So how could he be indwelling believers if he had not yet been given? And the argument here is that several groups of the Gentiles had not received the gift of the Holy Spirit until long after their conversion. And so we find, uh, particularly in Acts 19, this very interesting situation where uh, they come across these disciples of John in Ephesus and the question is asked, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And what was their response? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. <laughs> and, so, and then what's the response? Well, receive him then. And say, okay, we will. And they received the Holy Spirit apparently evidenced by some sort of a miraculous manifestation. They received the Holy Spirit. So they didn't have the Holy Spirit up till this point. So Decade after Pentecost, they hadn't, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So for I don't know how many years exactly, I'd have to count them up. But several years have gone by since Pentecost, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. So it looks as though the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. He wasn't indwelling people yet. But I, my answer here is that these passages are not referring to the gift of indwelling but to the visible sign gifts that mark the early church in Acts. Note specifically that in all of the Acts passages that uh, we find uh, uh, them speaking in tongues, the gift was observed by those standing about, probably in every case by outburst of tongues. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, though, cannot be immediately observed. You can't see it. Oh, there's it would be great if it were. He's indwelt. Uh, but, but indwelling cannot be seen. Tongues can. Tongues seem to be indicating something other than just indwelling. We'll, we'll, we'll try and parse this out further once we get to tongues. But tongues are not an indication that people have begun to be indwelt, but that they have been united together by baptism of the Holy Spirit into one body. Okay, there's an indication here that we are part of a, spurt, uh, of a church that is united by, is, as one body in Christ. We're all made to taste of the one spirit. We are made by one spirit uh, to be one body, even, even if we are Jews and Gentiles, bond or free. And so there is this, this new organism, this new church, and because this was a radical change in the way things were done, there were these evidences in the form of tongues. That they had not been privy to. They were not aware that this new organism existed where Jews and Gentiles got together into one body. They were unaware of this. So that seems to be the gift 
that they didn't have, not the gift of indwelling. And that's part of part of the tension here when we go through this. We're going to talk a lot about a lot of different things that the Holy Spirit does, and our tendency is to lump them all together. Okay, the Holy Spirit, you either have them or you don't. Well, yeah, kind of, but there but there's multiple things that the Holy Spirit is doing. You know, he's he's indwelling, he's regenerating, he's he's gifting, he's he's causing revelations, and so there's all kinds of activities that the Holy Spirit is doing, and we can't lump them all together. So the fact that we find here people who have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit does not necessarily mean that they have had no influence by the Holy Spirit up to this point. They were believers. But they did not have a specific manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I don't think that specific manifestation is indwelling, per se. Does that follow? Okay. Union with Christ. In Romans 8 9, which we just read here, if you don't belong to the Holy Spirit, if the, you don't have the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. Perhaps this is a difficult objection here that's, that's been raised. Um, it says here, in order to belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And so, that some would say, okay, that is unique to being united with Christ, not with being a general believer. But I think. Uh, a better option uh, comes out here, and that's to say that there is a sense in which union Christ and being baptized into the Spirit are not the same thing. Now, when we are united with Christ, we are Spirit-baptized in our present dispensation. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into one body. Um, So that's unique to our dispensation. We don't have the baptism into one body in the Old Testament. And there were Jews and there were Gentiles, and they never really mixed very well. So we got something new. But there is a sense, and I think we can say, that Old Testament saints were in some sense united with Christ. I think we have to say that, because if we don't, then we're saying that they were saved by some other means other than by Christ. Now granted, they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't, they didn't have that revelation they didn't. I mean, they had a. They knew about a seed, <laughs> and and they knew about a promise, but they weren't really sure what this, what form it was going to take. Okay, um, but the, but and so we can say that they didn't know about Christ. But we have to say that their salvation doesn't come through the blood of fools and goats, because that doesn't do it. That can never take away sins. So they were saved. You know anachronistically, if we can say, by the death of Christ. Uh, there's no other means of salvation. So they were saved by the death of Christ. There's there's two options. You're either in Adam or in Christ. There's no in-between. And so Old Testament saints, in that sense, were in Christ. They weren't in the church, but they were in Christ for their, by, for as a means of salvation. So I don't know that that passage really causes a, a tremendous problem for us. Okay. Now, we don't have time to develop this. I, it's probably we better probably just stop here. Um, we wouldn't get very far if we started. But there are some pretty key key texts here uh, that that cause some problems, and so we'll have to we'll 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 punt for next week. Come back and see if we can address some of these key key texts and passages that 
are pretty strong arguments for perhaps saying that there wasn't a dwelling. Uh, but I, but uh, you can ponder that and think about that until we get here. Maybe come back with some good questions, knowing where we're where we're headed with this. Okay. Sound good? Any questions on what we've talked about up to now? I know we sort of we leave in the middle. I I I I mapped out exactly how I, how far I had to get each night in order to get this done, and this one was the one that was left off in the middle of the discussion. The rest of them hopefully will end after at the end of the discussion. But this one is too long. Yes, sir. Wouldn't you say that the, the, the saving faith? They display in the Old Testament is similar to, like, let's say Abraham. He knew that Isaac would be saved at the altar that he on the sacrificial, right? I mean, he knew right. God was going to provide some type of yes, because he knew that he promised a uh, son, and then he was right. then he knew. Yes. So by some trusting, saving faith, it's not an intellectual faith that yes, there is a God. Right. But it's not intellectual ascension. It's a, it's a trust in which. Yes. It is right? a trust. That's what we're talking about. The yeah, same it, 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 then is still absolutely. Yeah, it's that is placed in the God and the promises that God has has given up till that point. Which causes you to be obedient to Him. Sure. That's what I'm saying. It's re- sure. that's how Abraham was regenerate. Right. He obeyed God. Right. Well, that, that's, that's how he demonstrated this thing. He demonstrated but he was obedient because right. God... Yeah, faith is fundamentally a disposition. He displayed his obedience. Yeah, you, you, you didn't get saved when you said the prayer. The, 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 you were saved when you had the disposition and the impulse to pray. Yeah. That's the new nature. <laughs> yeah, it, wasn't the, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the event yeah. that saved you. That was that was that ultimately ends up being a manifestation, a demonstration right. of the fact that you believe it. Just like that doesn't demonstrate it. Yes, sir. Um, we talked about taking it back a little bit. Second uh-huh. uh, Timothy three sixteen. Yes. It talks about God. Uh, scripture is God breathed, mm-hmm. and when in the Old Testament, when when uh, God breathed in. God made Adam breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. Is that a picture of the the, the breathing of God tends it seems to reflect in all sort of the thing that ties all those breathings of God together is the creative activity of God. So when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life so that he became a living soul, that's the thing that ties it in. That's that's what is the comparison is with scripture. It is something that God produced. Would, would it be accurate to use that as, an, as a... It's, it's not as though when Adam was created, he had some sort of spark of divinity in him. So it's, it's not as though they're the same thing. What I think what ties them together is they're both products of God's creative activity. So that's, that's, that's the similarity. Excellent questions tonight. Okay.